0: Welcome my true crime roadies. I'm your host, Angela Baum, along with my husband, Larry, and this is Trucking True Crime Podcast, a true crime show where we focus on true crime stories that happen within the trucking industry. But don't worry, you don't need to know anything about the trucking industry to listen and enjoy the show. You just need to be a fan of true crime. And if that's you, then welcome inside. As a reminder, if you'd like to learn more about our life over the road as team truck drivers, you can listen to our other podcast, Married to the Road, where we share our lives over the road and stories along the way with our three furry dogs. As a reminder, our podcast discusses true crimes and murders. This is not a show for the faint of heart, and this is not intended for young audiences. Have you ever been interested about what all it takes to be a truck driver out here, delivering the goods all across America? Or more importantly, what is it like being a team trucker out here with your significant other 24 hours a day in a small confined space, working together, eating together, sleeping together, you name it. If you've ever been curious about the trucking industry, please listen to Larry and I's other podcast, Married to the Road. Again, that's Married, the number two, The Road. Please be sure to give it a listen today, and don't forget to hit that follow button. Welcome back, all my Trucking True Crime fans. I'm so thrilled you decided to join us. I am your host, Angela Baum. I'm a full-time truck driver with a passion for true crime. So I decided to put my two loves together to create this podcast, Trekking True Crime Podcast. Before we get on with today's case, if you could please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening to our podcast at. Also, leave us a review. It really helps us with our ratings. Please also be sure to visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You'll find us on TikTok where I give lots of trucking news stories throughout the week. So today we're going to be discussing the story of truck driver Adam Leroy Lane. So Adam was born on August 6, 1964 in Jonesville, North Carolina. Now not a lot is known about his early childhood, but what I did learn was that he dropped out of high school around the age of 17 years old. Friends that knew him way back then said that he had a short fuse and a big temper, and he was the type of kid that felt that he was superior to everyone within his school. Adam was known throughout his community for having a reputation of thinking that any woman was beneath him, including his own mother. Adam was a misogynist who believed and behaved in a domineering and controlling manner towards others, and it seemed that it was both towards men and women alike. Family and friends said that from an early age, Adam was known to talk down to his mother. He was known to scream and yell at her even while they were in public. What I tried to find out, but I was unsuccessful at, is whether this was a pattern that he had learned from his father. I really couldn't find out any good information about whether or not his father was even in his life, sadly. But when I was studying his case, it just seemed to me that when it comes to hatred towards a woman, and especially your own mother, and especially at such an early age as Adam started showing this behavior, this is usually a learned behavior. In his early years out of high school, he worked many odd jobs finally landing a job at a chicken factory plant where he was processing chickens. Co-workers said while he was a hard worker, he was a man that had a very short fuse with both men and women. He was very well known among the staff to be completely argumentative and over just about anything. In 1988, Adam had walked into a nightclub. That's where he first met Miriam Bengay and the two of them married shortly afterwards. Now Miriam claimed that Adam was only physically abusive to her on one occasion, but he was verbally abusive to her almost on a daily basis. She also claimed after only a year of marriage that she began to catch Adam cheating on her with a variety of women. Miriam also claimed that she had witnessed several times where he would verbally attack his own mother, both in public and in private. Five years later in 1993, the two of them finally decided to get a divorce and the two of them never did have any children together. Shortly after this is when Adam decided to get his CDL and become a long haul truck driver. Initially, he would deliver furniture to California and then bring hauls of produce back to the East Coast for a trucking company called Smith Trucking. Former employees of Adam's there said that he was not a very social person, and again they said the same thing that so many other people had said, that he had a short fuse and he was a very argumentative person, which seems to be a theme that follows Adam throughout his life. It was sometime after becoming a truck driver that Adam Leroy Lane, first became obsessed with a horror film called Hunting Humans. Now this film was currently filmed in 2002. The film is a horror flick and it's about a normal mortgage broker who decides that his life is really boring and he decides that he wants to become a serial killer. So he decides to become a serial killer by learning his victims routines, following them and learning their behaviors. By doing so, he feels like he is hunting his prey, which are humans. Adam became so obsessed with this movie that he would watch this over and over again, even to the point of carrying a laptop in his truck so he could watch this movie while over the road. It was shortly after that, in the summer of 2007, that Adam decided to put his dreams of becoming a serial killer just like in the movie, Hunting Humans, into his own reality. In the early hours of July 13th, around 2 a.m., a housewife named Darlene Ewald, who was 42 years of old, was on her back patio in a deep conversation with a good, close family friend of hers. She was sitting out there enjoying the night air, having a glass of wine, and the two of them had been laughing and joking for a while. Now at this point Darlene's husband Todd just laughed as he watched her out there on the phone as he stood in the sliding door. He was watching her in deep conversation with a good male friend of hers. He knew that his wife Darlene well enough to know that this conversation would probably go on for several more hours. So Todd decided that he was tired and needed to go to bed. So he went out to the patio to kiss his wife Darlene and told her that he was going to go ahead and head up to bed for the night and that he would just see her when she got done with her phone conversation. During her conversation with her good friend, the call suddenly got interrupted when on the other end, the male companion she was talking to heard a loud noise and then some muffling and the line went dead. Now the gentleman that Darlene had been talking to immediately got worried. He didn't know if she maybe fallen or hit her head or she was injured or what exactly happened. He told his wife what was going on and then he kept trying to call her back. But all of his calls to her cell phone went unanswered. Not knowing what to do, he turned to his wife for advice. And also, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't overreacting to what he would just heard on the phone but the two of them decided that it was best to head over to Darlene's house to check on her and make sure that she was okay. When the two of them arrived, they knew that Darlene had been sitting out on her back patio, so the two of them went through the fence walked over to the back patio, and that's when they discovered their shock and horror. There in her chair on the back patio was Darlene. Darlene was dead. She appeared to have suffered a deep, lacerating neck wound. Now Todd, her husband, who had gone to bed just earlier that out, that night, just a few hours earlier, was suddenly awoke to several men in his room. Now these men had flashlights in their hands. They were screaming at him to get up and to put his hands up in the air. As he was startled to wake, he looked up to see these men pointing guns at him. That's when he really realized that these were police officers. The police officers asked Todd if his son was in the home with him, to which Todd replied yes. At that point, the police went into his son's bedroom, woke his son up the exact same way, and took both Todd and his son downstairs to the kitchen, both of them handcuffed behind their back. Now, the first thing Todd saw when he started to come into the kitchen was on the counter was his wife's keys and cell phone. So this didn't make any sense to him. He was there, his son was there, but he didn't see his wife anywhere, yet her cell phone and her wallet was on the counter. So Todd turned to his son and told him, there's something wrong here because your mom would never leave without having her wallet and her cell phone. Off to the side, out of his peripheral vision, Todd saw some flash photography going off in his backyard. Now at this point, Todd and Todd's son had no idea what had happened. All they knew is they were in the kitchen, they'd been woken up in the middle of the night, it was still dark out, and there was some type of flash photography going off in his backyard. To say they were scared is an understatement. It was not until about three hours later that he finally was told that his wife Darlene had been murdered in their backyard. As in most investigations, when someone is killed, the first thing the police always do is immediately look at the family members. So as soon as Todd and his son were in the line of fire as possible suspects in Darlene's murder, and no matter how many times they tried to deny that they had anything to do with Darlene's murder, they were still the key suspects in this case. Adam's second victim was a lady named Patricia Brooks. Now, Patricia Brooks was a single mom who lived in her duplex with her daughter and her mom. On this particular evening, her daughter and her mom were both asleep soundly upstairs. That night, Patricia had gotten home kind of late, wound up turning on some TV, and fell asleep on the couch like so many of us do. Around 2.05 in the morning, she was startled awake, By something that she said felt like a stabbing pain in her right shoulder blade. When she opened her eyes, she saw what she described as a larger man with a pot belly, dressed all in black, with what she described as a prison guard's outfit on. The intruder, which we now know was Adam Leroy Lane, did not even try to disguise his face at all. He had no mask on his face to try to hide his identity. She claimed that Adam cut her from her right shoulder blade and across her throat. Immediately after he cut her, startled, she immediately grabbed her neck to try to stop the bleeding that was coming out of her neck and then sat down on the couch to try to catch her breath. As she sat down, she saw out of her side view, Adam slowly walk out her back door. After a few minutes and trying to gasp for air, she finally hollered loud enough upstairs to wake up her daughter and her mother so they could assist her in getting her into the hospital to get some help. Luckily Patricia did survive this vicious attack on her. Now in the late night hours of July 29th of 2007, off of Route 78 in Bloomsburg, New Jersey would become Adam's third victim. So Adam decided to park his truck off of Route 78 in Bloomsburg, New Jersey at a truck stop. Then he decided to take a late night walk as he wandered through a neighboring subdivision. During his walk, he was going from house to house. He was trying to see if anyone had left any of their windows or doors unlocked. Adam was in a hunting mood that night, and he was just looking for his right target to attack. That is when he came across the home of Monica Macero, age 37. Her duplex was located on Main Street in Bloomberg, New Jersey. As Adam approached her home, he found her back door was unlocked. Adam broke into her bedroom while Monica was sleeping and stabbed her in her head, neck and shoulders And then he left the same way that he came in. It was not until the next day when family members called the police to do a welfare check on Monica that her poor body was discovered. Adam was getting a real feel for his new life of hunting his victims. And after only a mere 22 hours later, his need to hunt would force him to go back onto the streets again. On July 30th, off of Interstate 495 in Massachusetts, Adam parked his big rig and started his hunt through a neighboring subdivision. Again, Adam was looking for unlocked windows or doors to homes. Around the same time that Adam was wandering through that neighborhood, a 15-year-old girl named Shay McDonough had a midnight curfew and she was just getting ready to get home and only had a few minutes to spare. As Shay was entering the house, she decided to leave the back door unlocked that she was coming through because she knew that her brother Ryan should be coming home soon and she wanted to make sure that she left the back door open for him. Now, Jeannie, Shay's mom, was on the couch that night watching an old Red Sox game. Jeannie said she just wasn't able to sleep that night and so she decided to start watching an old Red Sox game that they had recorded. Now what Jeannie forgot to tell Shay that night was that Ryan had called earlier and he had decided instead to stay over at a friend's house at night so Shay really didn't need to leave that back door unlocked for him. A little bit later Jeannie was watching her game in her bedroom when she heard some muffled noises and some weird sounds coming from her daughter Shay's bedroom. This startled her so much that it actually woke up her her husband, Kevin, who was asleep in the bed next to her. Kevin looked at Jeannie and said, what do you think's going on? And Jeannie said, well, you know, she's probably having a nightmare. Normally, Kevin would have Jeannie go in and check on her and he would just turn over and go to sleep. But that night, something told him that he should go in and check on Shay himself, and he figured in the same time he would grab himself a glass of water. At that same moment, Shay was being woke up in her bed to a hard and cold object against her neck. It was Adam, dressed head to toe in all black. This time, Adam wore a face mask on his face. He told Shay not to say a word or he was going to kill her. But Shay, being a smart 15-year-old girl, knew that in the very next room, her parents were right there, and she knew that she had to fight in order to survive and in order for her parents to hear her. Shay began to hit and punch Adam, which was the muffled noises that her mom, Jeannie, heard. Just then, her dad, Kevin, ran into the room and saw Adam, all dressed in black with a knife in his hand, leaning over his daughter in a fight. At that point, Kevin yelled at Adam and said, Who are you? Adam immediately began to go after Kevin, and now Jeannie. This was taking away his attention from Shay. Kevin yelled at Shay to run downstairs and to call 911 and to let them know what was going on. Now the battle between Kevin and Adam was on as the two were wrestling and fighting each other luckily back in high school and college kevin had been on the wrestling team in his high school and college years so soon kevin began to get the upper hand on adam and he was able to wrestle him to the ground Jeannie went up and literally grabbed the blade of the knife getting it away from adam but in the meantime as she was grabbing the blade of the knife Jeannie wound up cutting three of her fingers very, very severely. Kevin subdued Adam until the police arrived and it wasn't long before they arrested him. They asked Adam what he was thinking breaking into the McDonald's home that night and Adam told the family that all he wanted was money. When police arrested Adam and searched him, They wound up finding three Chinese throwing stars on him, the knife that was in his hand, the face mask, and what was called choking wires on him. After doing a background check on Adam, they found out that he was a long haul truck driver. They also found out that at the time of his arrest, Adam was a married man to his second wife, and the two of them had three daughters together. When police located Adam's truck at the truck stop, they found inside of his truck more Chinese stars, more knives, and more choking wires. They also found that laptop with the DVD inside of the movie Hunting Humans. That is when the police got to really worry. They thought, okay, this man is a long-haul truck driver, and according to his routes, he drives all over the country, The chances of him performing more crime is probably pretty high. While the police began their investigation, the judge decided to hold Adam without bail as they continued their investigation to see if Adam was involved in any other crimes in any of the surrounding states. The police immediately issued a BOLO or a Be on the Lookout with information about Adam and the different places that he had been according to his route manifest on his truck to all the surrounding police departments. It wasn't too much longer that they heard back from the New Jersey Police Department who told them about the murder the murder of Monica that had taken place just 22 hours before the attack on the McDonough family. The police started to look at Adam's logbooks on his trucks and his fuel receipts. That's when they found a receipt showing that he was in Bloom, New Jersey on July 29th at the truck stop getting diesel fuel for his truck. At about the same time, the police figured Monica had been murdered. The New Jersey police immediately came down to Massachusetts to interview Adam. They wanted to see if there was any way that they could link him to the murder of Monica. On that very same day, the New Jersey police were coming to interview Adam the owner of Adam's truck was going to the police impound lot to retrieve his truck. Because at that time, the Massachusetts police could not link Adam to any other crimes, so they had no choice but to release the truck back to the rightful owner. Lucky for them, when the owner arrived at the police impound lot that day, he took the time to clean out Adam's truck. He took all the items that were located inside of the truck that were Adams and threw them into the dumpster that was located on the impound lots property. And because of this, the police were able to collect all of the evidence to see if they could use any of that to implicate Adam in any other crimes. The police began gathering items like clothing and some of the knives hoping that they could find DNA evidence to leak him to other crimes and they sent this off for DNA testing. Now the New Jersey police got to the police station to interview Adam. At that point, the Massachusetts police told them that they were having no luck in getting Adam to talk. He didn't want to talk at all about anything having to do with the the attack on the McDonald family. Matter of fact, the police officer said, you probably will not be in there for long. He just doesn't want to talk. So the Massachusetts police officers grabbed a cup of coffee and sat outside the interrogation room, fully expecting that the New Jersey police would come out in just a few minutes after Adam refused to talk to him. But after an hour or two, the Massachusetts police realized that Adam was talking. Not even that, he was wanting to talk. It was like he was wanting to clear his conscience. After a few hours of everybody just kind of getting to know themselves and shooting the bullshit, it was. and at that point, knowing that the police really had no DNA or physical evidence to truly try tie Adam to anything other than that, all they had was this interview. After several hours, Adam finally confessed to killing Monica and how he killed her as she was sleeping in her bed. Now, he claims that he did not kill Monica for any sexual satisfaction. He claimed that the reason they killed her was that he just simply wanted to feel what it felt like to kill another woman. Throughout the interview, he just kept saying, I love my wife. I would never cheat on my wife. That's not why I killed her. Several weeks later, they finally got the DNA results back from the lab. The DNA results came back from the knives that they had collected from Adam's truck. Not only did they find Monica's blood on one of the knives that were inside of his truck, but they also discovered Darlene's blood on another knife as well, thus eliminating Todd and his son as suspects in Darlene's murder. Adam went on to be charged in three states with the the crimes up above. He was charged in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. He was sentenced to 25 to 30 years in Massachusetts for the brutal attack against the McDonough family. By pleading guilty in this case, he avoided the death penalty and also having to make 15-year-old Shay be forced to testify against him. In New Jersey, he was sentenced to 50 years for the murder for the murder of Monica Macero. And in Pennsylvania he pleaded guilty to the attack on Patricia Brooks and was given ten to twenty years for aggravated assault, and for the murder of Darlene Ewald, he was given life in prison. Adam is currently serving his prison sentence at the Fayette Prison in Pennsylvania. One of the awesome things about this tragedy with Adam is that this tragedy brought together the families of the Ewalds and the McDonoughs. They were together during all the trials supporting each other and the two families had become extremely close over the years, even to the point where they have each other on speed dial. They'll call each other, including the kids, whenever they just need somebody to talk to. Jeannie McDon went on to write a book about their tragedy and everything that happened the book is called Caught in the Act, A Courageous Family's Fight to Save Their Daughter from a Serial Killer. I want to thank you so much for listening to our latest true crime podcast. I can't do it without support from you guys, and I truly appreciate it. If you haven't had a chance yet, please be sure to give us a five-star rating. And don't forget to join us back here next week while I bring you the latest edition of our latest podcast of Trucking True Crime Podcast. And as always, be safe, my roadies. Treaty Truckers started over three years ago when Larry and I started giving out $10 gift cards to Subway, Denny's, Pilot, and Loves, to our truck drivers to thank them for being out here and sacrificing time away from family and friends. In three years, we've given out over 3,200 gift cards to thank our truckers. This holiday season, we'd like to give them even more. We'd like to not only give them a $10 gift card, but also a little gift bag to show our true appreciation. If you would like to donate this year, please visit our Facebook page, Treat a Trekker, to make a tax-free donation today. Help us give back to our trekking community. Please visit us at Treat a Trucker and make a donation today. so much my true crime roadies for giving our podcast a listen we really appreciate you listening to our trucking true crime podcast if you enjoyed our podcast please be sure to visit our instagram page or our tiktok page also trucking true crime podcast and don't forget that you can visit our facebook page as well again trucking true crime podcast. Be sure to like, share, and follow. And be sure to share out our podcast to all your friends. We'll be back here next week with another great episode. Thank you so much, my true crime roadies. Be safe out there.